Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm happy to welcome today's guest, Dr. Jason Mendez. He is a Barrica writer, playwright, performer, and educator from the South Bronx, New York. He received his MFA in creative writing from Randolph College and his PhD in education with an emphasis in curriculum, culture, and change from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His teaching and research interests focus on unschooling, arts as social justice, cultural studies in education, and public pedagogy. He is the founder of the Sons of the Boogie, a Bronx-based arts collective, as well as the co-founder of Block Chronicles, a national web series and online magazine profiling the work of Latinx educators and artists. Dr. Mendez is currently a visiting assistant professor of education in the School of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jason. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So you grew up in the Bronx and now you're a professor. So how did your early life shape your professional interests in, in Afro-Latinx and Latinx communities more broadly? Yeah, I've been, it's, uh, since you sent these questions in preparation, I was thinking about that question for so much and for so long, excuse me, and thinking about how it shaped my, my work. And I, it took me back to my, my days in the Bronx and I had to really think about how I experienced being Boricua in New York and in the Bronx. And then when I was 15, we moved down to Florida, Venice, Florida. Uh, and it, it was just a, a completely different world culture shock of going from the space where you're, you know, amongst black and brown communities. Uh, and then now you're like the sole person in a school of hundreds of kids that are, you know, all white kids in different classes that I wasn't used to experiencing in the Bronx. And I experienced race <laughs> very different that I thought was just like in the TV shows that I watched in New York. So. Growing up in the Bronx, like, you know, the only time I ever saw the Confederate flag was when I watched like Dukes of Hazard, not knowing the, his the history behind that. Mm -hmm. And then moving down south, it's like, it was a different meaning for the, the kids in school who wore Confederate flags and these, these racial tensions that exist. And it was just something I wasn't used to and began to ask questions of like what it meant to be othered. And this was at, you know, 15, 16 years old and mm -hmm. being an outsider in this space and just asking these racialized questions. and. I felt very isolated in Venice, Florida. Uh, it was a miserable experience. I only lasted two years. And once I graduated, you know, I left Florida and never returned back. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I watched a lot of films and that was, you know, that spurred my interest in like cultural studies and representations in media. But, you know, that this is back in like 95, 96. So when I was in Florida, it's like the first time I saw like a Bronx tale. So like these, these conversations of race that were happening in the Bronx in the 50s and 60s, on like, you know, the different neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and, you know, Puerto Rican neighborhoods and Italian neighborhoods and the racial tensions there that growing up in the Bronx, I just didn't know that history. I heard stories from my father, but didn't really know the, the, the authentic uh, context of like what he experienced. And then, you know, I watched movies like Higher Learning and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, issues of race and higher education and, you know, these different, you know, how groups racialize themselves. And I just asked so many questions about race, but, uh, but it wasn't until I was in grad school that I realized that I knew nothing about my Puerto Rican identity. Oh. And like I had, you know, 
I had the flags hanging in my car and hanging in my room. Claro. Uh, you know, I had the bandanas. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I learned how to cook. You know, the, at that time I was still I, I was still novice in cooking, but I did good enough to where if I had a craving for some, you know, Boricua food, I was able to do it down south. You know, and you know, and I, and I listened to the music. Uh, but beyond that, I just didn't know anything of of the history. And the first book I ordered online was um, oh, I have it right here. Is Boricua's influential Puerto Rican writings and anthology by uh, uh, by Roberto Santiago, mm -hmm. and what made me just think is like I never knew about so many of these writers and artists, and why wasn't it until I was grad school that I just started to learn about this? Like, especially coming from New York and the Bronx, I was like, I should have learned who Pedro Abiso Campos was. I should have known who Julia de Burgos was and Piri Thomas, uh, and all these artists. Um, and so. Just, as in grad school, I just started really focusing on, you know, the stories of Puerto Rico, but then also racializing those stories of what it meant to be, you know, uh, dark-skinned Puerto Rican. Because, you know, a lot of my questions started with Petey Thomas's down these mean streets, what it mm -hmm. meant for him to be, you know, a dark-skinned Puerto Rican growing up in Spanish Harlem. And that wasn't my experience being, you know, uh, light-skinned Boricua uh, growing up in the South Bronx. And just raising so many questions of the nuances of identity and just seeing how gender and sexuality and region and language just shaped of what it meant to be Boricua, that it wasn't this, this fixed singular identity and that what really spurred on all these questions of what it meant to be Boricua and Afro-Boricua. No, exactly. That I really love the way you highlight that, that it's not a fixed identity, that they, it's fluid, very, very fluid. Yeah. Um, I know you're drawn to ideas of, of uh, place and belonging and preserving migration histories. And I'm wondering if you could tell, say a little bit more uh, about why you were drawn to these areas, especially in the evolution of your research. Yeah, I, it was just funny. Like in New York, you know, I was Puerto Rican. And uh, for more of a general term, I would always also identify either being Spanish or Hispanic. And then I moved down south and all of a sudden, like I'm Latino. And so like all these like words, identifiers, as like depending on what region, you know, the country you are, you, take, you get this different, you know, identity uh, name. And so just starts to ask questions about you know what it meant to be Boricua, what it meant to be Latino, what what is a correct identifier? And I always go back to the term Boricua because growing up in the Bronx, you know, you hear it in music, and you're always told Boricua slang, you know, for being Puerto Rican. And then I just didn't know about the post-colonial history of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't know about you know the Taínos and and, and the indigenous you know uh, folks in, in Puerto Rico and you know, how enslaved folks were brought over uh, and that, you know, with the Spanish and the, uh, the, the Tainos that made up the bloodlines of being Boricua. Uh, and so just all those questions of identity and then, you know, the particularities of my work, because I'm a writer and, you know, I focus on memoir, nonfiction. I know when I write my stories, my stories are not just my story. Like I'm centralized and it's my point of view. But when I tell you my story, I tell you the story of Jose Antonio Mendez, AKA Bito, AKA Pete, you know, AKA my father, you know, who was a plumber. You know, he was an artist who had to become a plumber because he was the oldest son and had to support his other, you know, uh, uh, siblings uh, in the family. His father was a plumber. You know, uh, my grandfather, you know, his dad, Jamon Mendez, moved from uh, uh, Moca, Puerto Rico to, you know, the, uh, New York, you know, like in the 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where he met, you know, my grandmother, who's also from Moca, but they met in New York. And, you know, they lived in the Lower East Side. And, you know, he was a super. Uh, and I always joke because, you know, the, the story is that it was so bad in the Lower East Side that they moved to the South Bronx. And I was like, dang, like how bad was it in the Lower East Side? <laughs> where the South Bronx was like, we got to go right. to the South Bronx. 
you know, and that's where they migrated. And, you know, that's where my roots are, you know, the Hunts Point section of the South Bronx over in the 600 block of Manita Street. And uh, it's funny because now I'm reading this book for this doctoral class I'm teaching. And it's Victoria Chang's uh, Dear Memory. And the opening paragraph, I have it here. She, it's about her own family history. And she uses all these documents that she's found of the, dating back to marriage certificates, you know, uh, and they're all, you know, Chinese documents that she's bring to her poetry. And she says, you know, to her mother, what did your mother do? What did your grandmother do? Who was your father, grandfather? And she ends by saying, it's too late now, but I would like to know. And I felt like that because my father died when he was like 51, 52 from brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And so like, I wasn't able to ask those questions. And so I'm left like piecing together pieces of my history and oral histories by talking to like, you know, aunts and uncles and my mom and like, you know, my one grandfather, his father who's still living. And like trying to piece that together, that history and just like preserve that culture. And that's just really what's central to my work of just identity and just knowing like, you know, where we come from. That's beautiful. I mean, I think it's it's something that increasingly people are are turning to to try to gather those stories, you know, before people pass. But even if when they do, that there's there are other other elements, other memories that they can collect to provide that sense of of family and 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 uh, and belonging and identity. If you're like a family like mine, like we share the stories, but no one in my family has documented it uh, for like those next generations. Like you know, I have three children. You know, for like my children's children, if they have, you know, their, their kids, if they have kids, like, how would they know that history unless it's documented? And so that's what just the real push for my work and just making sure as a storyteller, being able to document these stories for future generations to look back and know, like, where the Mendez line, you know, came from, or the Rivera line, my mother's side of the family, you know, our roots, you know, from New York to the Bronx, to, you know, back to Puerto Rico and those stories of migration and just like the whys, you know, why did, you know, my grandmother, Virginia Rivera, why did, you know, she moved from Ibonito in the mountains to, right. you know, the Bronx, you know, how did my grandparents meet? And like that kind of stories of just like our history, you know, it's very different. Like my wife's, you know, family, like they, they were, they have like family reunions like every two years and they have like committees and like treasurers mm -hmm. and, like, right, so right. and like there's, you know, like budgets and like there's like agendas and plans and they plan for like years ahead of locations. And I'm like so amazed by that. Cause I'm like, we never do that. Like, mm -hmm. You know, like when we have a family reunion, it's like by chance because we're all together in the same spot. And like, but they have it recorded in their history. Like they have these family trees on Ancestry.com that goes back to like the plantations in which their family has histories on and like the white families that their surname came from. And I'm just like, wow, like to have that history is so important. And it really inspired me to think about like my own family history. Yeah, I mean, and I say, you know, it's it's there it's waiting for you to to, to complete those family trees and, and make those connections and you know maybe you have to be the one that organizes an official reunion sometime I, um, I also, also want to ask you as a scholar and educator how would you say your work contributes to our understanding of, of Afro-Latinx communities more broadly either histories or cultures in a broad sense so I fuse my work in education you know, I, I, as an academic scholar, and then also as an artist, to really decenter and decolonialize how our stories are told. Like, there's so much controversy on like CRT and critical race theory, and like folks who like are like, oh, I shouldn't be told. Like, don't have a clue like what it is. And I'm like, mm -hmm. like, how are we like? How is controversial in terms of like telling stories from point of views that decenter historically how they're told? 
And so I want to tell my story from my positionality and privilege this, these notions of race and class and show how they shaped, you know, our stories. And, you know, that's what I do in my education courses, where a lot of times I bring in prose and poetry and the nuances of language to retell our stories from, uh, removed from an academic voice. You know, a lot of times I push students to autoethnography where it's this, you know, biographical and ethnographical impulse that kind of intersect because I want them to bring their stories, you know, to, to whatever work that they do. Like I always share with them that your positionality is important. And when you understand your story, then you're able to connect with the communities or the students that you work with and understand the, the holistic story of their experiences that go beyond the four walls of a classroom that you engage with them. You know their communities, you know their families, you know the history of place. You know, for example, I had in my classes here, folks do work in either Homewood or Hill District uh, here, which, you know, historically black uh, communities in Pittsburgh. And a lot of times I, I tell them, know the history of why Homewood has become Homewood in terms of like the industrialization, the displacement of black folks in the Hill District because of the Civic Center and how Homewood was, you know, historically white and affluent black communities. And there was a white flight when, when uh, those this displacement happened and they settled in Homewood, folks settled in Homewood. Mm -hmm. And like, know like th those histories uh, of that place. And, and for me being Boricua, knowing that was so critical because even what language is important, like I'm not fluent in Spanish. It is not my native tongue, but that always comes up when we think about authenticity as identity. Like even if authenticity is real, like I, you know, I would be called like New Yorican uh, in a sense being, you know, mm -hmm. born and raised in the Bronx. Uh, and language has always been one of those things that have, you know, put me in a different space. Like, oh, you don't speak Spanish. And so what is that about? And I, and I had to learn that my grandmother, when she moved from Puerto Rico to New York, she was a teacher. And so back then she taught special education, but special education when she taught was ESL. And so she taught a lot of the kids who migrated from, uh, you know, the Caribbean uh, uh, who came over to the Bronx. And so, you know, she would be an ESL teacher and she saw the challenges students had navigating the system of schooling because of language. And for her, it was more of a political move to not speak Spanish at home. Right. But again, what happened is I lost that and so my kids are even further from that. And so there's this native tongue that I'm, I, I'm trying to get back now uh, and to connect to like those roots. And so it's very political in terms of that identity. And just it just shapes my work to understand those nuances of identity and positionality and how they shape, you know, our, my work as an artist and as an educator, but also like the other folks I have in class and getting them to recognize the stories of their students and the communities that they work with and for. Has that been... Um, have you received any resistance to that or, or have students been, been uh, welcome, responsive to that? Well, I've, I, I could probably count on one hand the time students have been resistant and it's mostly been white students who, who come from the savior mentality of this community needs me. And what I try to explain to students is if, if this community had equity and justice, there would be no role for you in this space. And so we have to ask broader questions to that. And there's this, that, that resistance of, of deficit model thinking and what you bring to, these, uh, uh, to the communities. Uh, and so in that sense, yeah, there has been resistance, but most of the time in academia, the students that I've been with, they've never had faculty of color, uh, let alone a Boricua faculty of color. Like when I taught my first job, 
after my doctor program, I was at your college in Jamaica, Queens. Mm-hmm. And I loved it when I did my job talk. And it was the school I was like, I want to come here because I, I love this, these students. They just reminded me of myself growing up in New York. And I came back. And one of the things that was so stunning to me was my students were like, oh, you're the first Puerto Rican Latino professor that we've had. And I was like, man, in New York, in the school mm-hmm. uh, like this, like, how could I be the first? And what I saw, what I represented for them was like, we could be on the other side of this. Uh, and exactly. I saw my role, instead of just being professor educator, I saw the importance of me also brokering and helping them navigate these spaces that I went through. So, you know, they could have an easier time navigating. Like, you know, I forget the, the verse, Jay-Z says, you know, I went, I did that so you wouldn't have to go through that. And I felt like that was my responsibility to help students navigate that. And I saw my role a lot bigger than just being a professor, but just really a mentor and like, you know, mm-hmm. how to navigate whiteness in higher ever, you know, higher education because it can be draining and your quality of life can be brought down. And if you don't have the mental health and well-being and prioritizing self-care, like it can really do a lot, you know, physically and mentally. And so being that kind of support for my students is one thing I also center in my work. That's fantastic because that is no joke. Yeah, <laughs> Um, I also want to ask you, what then do you think are some of the most urgent issues for uh, Latinx, Afro-Latinx communities, especially as they relate to you and your work? It, it, it builds off that last thing I just said, the, mm-hmm. the mental health and well-being, especially more so like being in a pandemic. Uh, when you're also dealing with another pandemic that's existing in terms of race, what we've specifically seen like in Black communities and the social unrest and protests going around mm-hmm. uh, the country. Uh, and then you put a global pandemic on top of that. Like as a faculty member, what chairs and people who do annual reviews on your work don't realize is productivity is down because I'm now having to be like therapists and, and social, uh, excuse yep. me, like emotional support for my mm-hmm. students. Right, exactly. And, like, and then also like you prioritize like what's actually important like this meeting or this chapter or like my students who are like my, like this is a for real story. And like, you know, trigger warning for anyone in terms of like, you know, uh, suicide. But I had a student, an undergrad student who wanted to speak to me after class and was going through a lot and said one of his best friends, you know, tried to take his life. But because we were in quarantine and in a pandemic, he could not be there for his friend and he was struggling with that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at the curriculum and what we're planning to do. I'm like, that stuff is out the window. Like, who cares like about this paper and like this topic? And like, we can do that another time. Like, mm-hmm. are you okay? And like, me and my partner, my you know, Dara Mendez, she's a professor in the school of public health. We I, we developed the the position that like, if you show up, that's good enough for me. Like, if this community is is the space you need, like that's all I'm gonna ask for you right now, just to make sure you're in the space, just to to be safe and take care of what you need to take care of. And so. That's been central to the work of importance, especially navigating the pandemic, you know, as a person of color or any person from a marginalized position. Uh, it's been, you know, twofold in, in trying to, you know, have that mental capacity to do that. And so that's just been very central to my work in dealing with mindfulness. And I went to Puerto Rico last summer uh, for a month uh, and it was life changing because I started thinking about mindfulness and, and impermanence and, you know, how time is not linear and it unfolds and what it did. And we stayed in Fajardo, Puerto Rico. So if you're not familiar with Fajardo, uh, it's on the east, east coast of Puerto Rico, um, past Luisa, uh, which I absolutely love, uh, Luisa. 
And it is very close to El Yunque. And where we stayed, we were on the mm-hmm. top floor. And we had a balcony that overlooked the mountains. And every morning, you know, these red-tailed hawks would fly over us. And there was a connection to this ancestral history that I've never felt before. Mm-hmm. And it was a renewal of spirit where you just understand the importance of, of what you want out of life in terms of dreams and moving forward. And just that connection. And I realized in academia, it's so built on time. Like once you enter it, you're like on tenure clock. And so it's yes. like yes. one thing after another. And so like mm. you can't get to breathe. And the, the pandemic for me, I was able to be in a position where I can breathe and see like what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And just to be like, you know, I don't, I don't think academia is like what I want or where I need to be. And to have that clarity just was really important. And I now bring that to my classes. You know, we, like my son, you know, in the pandemic, we, it just wasn't a good experience. He just turned last 13 last week. And so sixth grade was hard for him. And so seventh grade, we were like, let's try homeschooling because the pandemic, I, you know, for those who got children listening, like at home, when I saw what he was doing in school as an educator, I'm like, bro, this is a waste of time, man. Like, this is what you're doing. And like, we were like, you can be doing so much more in, in terms of like culturally relevant pedagogy and the stuff that I do with Afro-Boricua identity and Puerto Rican history and culture. Cause I didn't get that until I was grad school. And like, I want him to have that. And my kids have that, you know, as adolescents, that history. And so I, I adapted that same thing in my classes where I'm like, in homeschool, you're more concerned with aptitude and development rather than grades. And that kind of formal assessment. And my classes this semester, I'm like, yo, grades are out the window. Let's focus on assessment and aptitude because it's hard to measure your progress because your starting points are all different. And so how can I say you get an A, you get an B uh, in this case? And so what it did at the end of the semester when they did their presentations, it was like one of the, some of the best presentations I've seen students have done. And one of the parts of their portfolios was like creating a vision board and what are your goals and how are you using this degree to go after the things you want? Mm-hmm. I did a documentary recently on first generation college students in COVID. And one of the, uh, the gentlemen we interviewed had mentioned how he was working this corporate job at a bank. It was one of the best jobs he had. And they talked about how he was such an asset to the company uh, and about promotions and raises. And then the pandemic hit and they wiped out his whole department. Wow. And yeah. yeah. And he was like, for him, he was like, I never want that to happen to me again. Mm-hmm. And he started taking his hands and he went back to school uh, and tried to, you know, create a more sustainable income and, and, and foundation for his family that was not based upon someone else controlling uh, that. And that's what I tried to tell my students. Like it was told to me when I was in grad school from my, one of my mentors, Dr. James E. Osler, that you never really discover your full potential working for someone else. And he always promoted creative social entrepreneurship and, and doing your own thing. And that's like why I created Sons of the Boogie and Block Chronicles. And that's like what I try to tell my students uh, that like, you know, it's great to go into the fields that you do, but like also establish your own thing where you have autonomy to control the work that you wanna do and support the communities in a way they need to be supported. That's a long answer for your question. Sorry, I went on on that. Tangent. No, no. I mean, I, I think these are they're excellent points about finding, you know, what you know, taking that, you know, found, getting that foundational piece and then taking that and doing whatever it is you you're called to do yeah. with it. That that's not so dependent on all the kind of structured time demands, you know, that are dictated by by certain kinds of careers. Uh, yeah, possibilities. Students, students were so stressed. I had an undergrad student because now I'm older. So like now it's it's weird being in classes because like 
I'm having students that are like, I'm double, I'm twice their age. Like they're coming from high school. And like, it's like such a gap. And like, even the references I use in class, they're like, what is that? And so <laughs> it's this new generation of students. And so some of them, even in the pandemic, were so stressed because of grades. Even when I tell them, like, we're not concerned with that, they still like performers, like, what do you want? You know, that whole professor, right. like, provide what he wants. I'm like, I don't have a criteria for what I want. I want what you want to create. Like, that's what's significant. And they can't get over that, that mm-hmm. transition of high school, like, being told and the expectation of, like, a rubric, and this is what I need to meet, versus, like, just create. Like, this is an opportunity to be intellectually curious and to play with ideas uh and you know get ex- new experiences from your your classmates and your peers and you know move out of the bubbles that we are in and learn from other folks uh and their experiences uh and so it, it's been great on in that standpoint um and but just new for students and refreshing just to kind of like take a breath uh and i try to provide that i tell my students like i know a lot of classes are a point of stress and i hope that this is not one of them and they're appreciative of that to have a space to take a breath and like know like you know this is a point of exploration like why why you got here like why are you at pit why are you in this class like this is a means to something else what is that something else and like how can I be of support to you now in order to get there definitely definitely so um we're gonna I have one final question for you yes, that I like yeah. to ask like that I like to ask all of um all of the people on the show uh, so in addition to your work on block chronicles Sons of Boogie. And actually, before I close it, I, I do want to ask, can you talk a little bit more about Block Chronicles and Sons of Boogie? And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Block Chronicles uh, is funny. It started as a podcast uh, back in like 2016, 2017, yeah. something like that. It was um, part of the public pedagogy, tongue twist, public pedagogy component of the Latinx Education Research Hub that one of my brother's good friends, colleagues, Dr. Juan Carillo, he founded at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Dr. Carillo and I met when I was a professor at Duke and he was at Carolina. Uh, I was the director for their minor in the program of education and I didn't know him and I heard of him and we got connected through a mutual uh, friend of ours and I invited him over for a talk and, you know, he we were the same age, you know, uh, we had kids the same age and he was Chicano, Mexican from, you know, Compton. And I'm Boricua, you know, from the South Bronx. And here we are in, you know, Triangle, Durham, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, trying to figure out where our place was mm-hmm. and so far from home. And we found someone in each other that reminded us of home. And we just became like instant brothers, like talking trash of Knicks and Lakers or playing like <laughs> video games online, like dehumanizing the stuff that typically in academia, like, like, oh, we need to be doing research and scholarship. It's like, no, I'm going to be playing like PlayStation right now with like my brothers <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and we were that kind of like emotional mental health support. And mm-hmm. he had an idea of doing a podcast about home and sharing stories of home. And we did one. And that was the only podcast episode we ever did. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. And like we, uh, we actually got a grant based upon that one podcast a couple of years later because it was a time where podcasts were shifting to video podcasts. And we were like, hey, let's start a podcast called Block Chronicles, where we go to different people's blocks and neighborhoods and talk about this idea of home. And we want to talk about educators, researchers, artists, uh, community-based organizations, but an emphasis on Latinx communities, but we've interviewed folks from various BIPOC communities as well. Uh, And we wanted to just share those stories. Like we were faculty and we had resources and we want to leverage our resources to help amplify voices of work being done in very localized communities that you don't hear of. 
And we got a grant from the Pittsburgh Foundation and traveled the country for a year and collected over 30 interviews. Because of COVID, we haven't really released and messed up our timetable. And so that's what, you know, started Block Chronicles and telling these digital stories about various communities throughout the country. And, you know, and even outside of the states, we're in Puerto Rico, you know, as well. Uh, so that's what we do with Block Chronicles. And Sons of the Boogie was a Bronx organization that created with my brother, Sekou Gray, and my mentor, uh, the late Phase Two uh, artist, uh, mentor mine. Um, he's a founder of the culture. When I say culture, I mean hip hop. Mm-hmm. And it started as a place to amplify his work. And Phase Two, I did my dissertation on Phase Two and his story. And during my dissertation, what I learned from him was he said, what is the, the significance of telling my story if you don't believe in the beauty of yours? Mm-hmm. And, and as an artist, he always believed in my work. And he always said, Sons of the Boogie is not about me. It's about us. And so that's when my artistic voice began to come through as a poet, as a playwright, as a writer. And so Sons of the Boogie is just really a Bronx collective of artists sharing our history and stories of the Bronx. But it's also wider than just the Bronx of any community that experience, has experienced similar to the Bronx in these urbanized spaces. And folks who are impacted by gentrification and systemic erasure who are wanting to preserve the stories of place and of people of those places. Because when folks get this displaced and gentrification, we lose those histories and we want to create kind of like a hub of, of preserving those stories. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So, well, so in addition to those pieces, and we'll have some links to those on the podcast website, what other specific kinds of resources would you recommend to people who want to learn more? about the work that you're doing, about these communities? Where would you, you know, are there any kind of films or books or other digital projects, social media organizations that you can recommend? Oh, there's a ton. You know, being in academia because of uh, the work that I love, I love bringing in prose and poetry into the classroom because oftentimes it's not seen as a contribution to scholarship because it's not quote unquote research. Like there's not a methodology uh, it's not a structure how we're used to it, but it challenges these ideas of knowledge and who can create knowledge and how we disseminate knowledge. And it's, access to, it's accessible in ways that most academic research is not. Like, for example, I love the story of Kali Anstin Fajardo, uh, author of Karina and Sabrina, award-winning book, a national book fan, finalist. She is a high school dropout, went back to school to get her MFA. I think she didn't like the program she was in, ended up going to another program, uh, getting her MFA. And her first book won all these awards. It's now been translated in like um, some crazy, like five, six different languages and it's global. And she's always posting comments and feedback she gets from mothers and daughters who resonate with her work and how significant it is to communities. And it just was so inspiring to really center the arts. And I would just recommend for folks just to engage in poetry and prose and hear those voices, those raw voices of what it's like to, to live in, in, in spaces that we're not familiar with and getting into that unfamiliar with. Like I have a stack of books on my desk from, you know, Victoria Chang, uh, Dear Memory to, um, what is, uh, 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 Olga Dies Dreaming uh, 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 is another one that just came out. And so I just like, I just like to just dive in into like poetry and prose, specifically amongst, you know, black and brown writers. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Thanks for agreeing to share your first published poem with us today. It's entitled, Remember the Wind, 
published in the July-August 2021 issue of Poetry, the oldest monthly publication devoted to verse in the English-speaking world. Remember the wind after Joy Harjo. Life cycle of a dandelion. Observation. Under the warm sun, I laid a twill blanket across the lime and pear-colored grass. Near the edge of the blanket stood a dandelion. I had seen plenty of dandelions before, but never paid them much attention. And then I thought of Joy Harjo. In her poem, Remember, we are called to remember the plants, trees, animal life, all who have their tribes, their families, their histories too. And so I remember a single dandelion plant will live up to three life cycles. That's three generations of dandelions. Remembering a dandelion is not just remembering its life cycle, but remembering every dandelion cycle has led to its germination. Stage one, a dandelion begins life as a seedling. Each seed is attached to a single feather called a pappus, the hair-like bristles that help it fly. Carried by the wind, a seed can drift up to 30 feet before landing on soil and producing close to another 2,000 dandelions. Stage two, eight to 15 weeks later, the bud blossoms. The round flower head looks like a little sun. The dandelion's petals are bright yellow and their tooth-like shapes give them their name, Dent de Leon, or lion's tooth. The plant's leaves grow closer to the ground, spread three to 10 inches across the surface, while the roots continue growing six to 18 inches deep. Stage three. A mature dandelion plant produces about 12 flower stems. Each grows about 12 inches tall and produces a single bud. The flower stems have about seven days before it dies and becomes a puffball, or what is commonly known as a wish flower. Stage four, the flower head closes, the yellow petals fade in color, and the bud reopens into a little tiny moon of white feathers. A wish flower can produce up to 175 windborne seeds. Folklore superstitions believe wish flowers and dream are dreams or messages delivered by the wind to our loved ones. Reflection, I remember the dandelion I sat next to. In a few days, its petals will fade and its bud will close when it reopens a wish flower and the wind will come and carry its seeds off to begin another generation of dandelions. In the story of the dandelion, the wind is the knowing. The wind's voice can be calming, a soft breeze on a warm spring afternoon, or unpredictable of, and violent. Una tormenta, as mi abuelita would say. Sometimes we are the wind in a dandelion's life cycle, a breath of air making a wish, watching the seeds float away like miniature umbrellas that have folded inside out, inside us, out. Note. Joy Harjo writes, remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Thank you, that was beautiful. Thank you. If you wanna know how my work is shaped, like read anything from Joy Harjo. Like she's my absolute number one favorite author. Uh, her new book, um, Poet Warrior, you know, just recently came out her newest memoir. Like it's just beautiful storytelling. Uh, and then she tells the stories of, of her becoming a poet and how there's always that one person in the family, the storyteller, and it's a great responsibility. And she's that person. And through her work, I realized in my family and like my crew who I grew up with, like I was that person to document our stories and tell like our history. And like, you know, I just I just love having that responsibility of being the one, the storyteller that that preserves our, our history. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I will certainly have uh, links to some of the, of the material that you mentioned. And thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast. 
and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.